Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for June 30th, 2019. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, Waiting and Wondering. I spent the last week in Cuba, which is a most interesting place to prepare a sermon on sex. <laughs> Unchanged from my first visit 15 years ago, I find the island a sensual paradox. The extremes to the six senses are arresting. Bright colored clothing hangs out to dry on the backdrop of crumbling concrete monochromatic architecture in a land that on the surface seems to have paused about 60 years ago. Rich, vibrant landscapes with vivid flowers and lush Caribbean vegetation and dinner plates crammed with earth-toned rice and beans, plantains and yucca, only sparse green vegetables, no summer tomatoes or yellow squash. By our consuming standards, by our consuming comforts, life there seems substandard, a subsistence unyielding to joy, yet there is an exuberance that brims out of the socialism that our beloved freedom seems to disdain. On the backdrop of these confusing contradictions, uh, a radiant sensuality thrives. Music throbs with the rhythm of love. An unmistakable romance fills the thick, hot air. And while I am sure that the same can be said of Cuban masculinity, I seem tempted only to take note of the women who swim in a sexuality that is often uninhibited yet never flaunted. So I spent a week on an unair-conditioned rattle-trap school bus riding the unforgiving roads of Fidel Castro's revolution, and behind me, occupying all the sweaty back seats, 11 volcanoes of sexual energy, always on the verge of exploding. (laughs) With Cuba out the front window and 11 teenagers just behind, I passed the roughshod miles by reading Shameless, a sexual revolution, excuse me, a sexual reformation, by the unambiguously crass and shamelessly reverent Lutheran pastor named Nadia Boltz Weber. I'll have to pause and tell you, nobody knew what I was reading. And at one point down the road, I was in the chapter called, I Smell Sex and Candy. And Crystal Smith tapped on my shoulder and said, what in the world are you reading? (laughs) And so I, I told Crystal why I was reading about sex this week in Cuba. Uh, Weber, given her background of abuse by alcohol and men and the church, this pastor-turned-author offers a no-holds-barred approach to Christianity. Regarding the church's treatment of sex and sexuality, she says with her memorable use of words, it's time that we burn it the bleepity-bleep down. We need to change the way we think about sex, she opines, not just the way we talk about it to our young people. At this point, I probably should pause to explain that if you came in this morning and read the scripture and expected a sermon about agriculture or maybe construction, well, that is not what this passage is about. 
because we are all so uncomfortable talking about sex in church, there are commentators and pastors who have tried to interpret the phrases gathering stones and scattering stones in those ways. But there is a well-known euphemism bound in these biblical words uh, from ancient Hebrew. The best clue for interpretation is the words that are paired together with these phrases. A time to gather stones and a time to scatter stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. As with the other pairs that we have read this summer, they go together. Born and die, plant and pluck up. Kill and heal, break down and build up. Weep and laugh, mourn and dance. Gather and scatter, embrace and refrain from embracing. I can't help but to pause one more time and say this. I'm glad Jackson just walked in for the sex sermon. Um, <laughs> because my sons have said to me, you know, Dad, we can watch, Bennett and I can watch 25 movies and not see one bit of skin. And if we ever sit down to watch a movie with, with you and Mom, the very first scene, somebody's having sex in the first scene of the movie. So Jackson got here just in time for the summer's one and only sex sermon. Even in the ancient world, there was a reluctance to talk about, you know, S-E-X. So people made up substitute names for private body parts. If you think Naomi in that story from the book of Ruth, if you think Naomi actually instructed Ruth to go lie with Boaz and to uncover his feet and then to do what he said, you need to think again. Because that's, that's not how the world works. There were euphemisms for body parts and for, you know, the dirty deed. Uh, today, some people call it, you know, doing the laundry or having a party. In ancient Israel, they talked about a burning desire for gathering stones. Go figure. Now, I'm not a sex therapist, and I have no need to be a shock jock from the pulpit, but the issue obviously is important. But sadly, it should go without saying that the church hardly has a good track record on the subject. There are far too many horror stories to be told, not just of those who are abused in the church, but those who have been abused by the church, by its repressive and regressive teaching about this oddly uncomfortable topic. The simple message from today's text is, like every other good thing, there's a time and a place for sex. Not all the time, not every place. The Apostle Paul, being celibate and single, might, uh, might not seem the best to offer guidance on the subject. Nevertheless, his words give us a place to begin as we, as we talk this morning. Someone in the ancient church of Corinth asked Paul about, you know, gathering stones, and here's what he said. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman, but because of cases of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The woman should give to his wife, excuse me, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a set time to devote yourselves to prayer 
and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, maybe your partner has never said to you, oh, not tonight, dear, I have to pray about it. (laughs) But Paul's advice is worth minding. Good sex is good for marriage. And unless you mutually agree that a short season of waiting would add to the wonder, then partners ought to let their passions run their course, remembering that your body is not your own. As Paul says, when we become one flesh, we gave that authority over to our partner. So we begin this morning with this conversation about sex in marriage as is appropriate for the church, marriage being the first institution, a stronghold for a healthy society. We need strong marriages, unions built on faithfulness and trust and wholeness, emotional and spiritual and sexual wholeness. But commanding, uh, but commending good sex for good marriages is the low-hanging fruit Perhaps an obvious place to begin, it is hardly the place we need to end that conversation. Let us remember, as the religious right continues to batter our culture with demands of the so-called biblical marriage, that such an ideal is much easier to speak than it is to actually defend. Show me one nuclear family in the Bible. One nuclear family in the Bible. It is much easier to find instances of polygamy than one man and one woman. The so-called traditional family is a bourgeois invention, a middle-class affair, and rather late on the scene in terms of our history, and one that is becoming less and less the norm today. In his important book called Embodiment, Dr. James Nelson discusses the evolution of marriage and the corresponding evolution of Christian attitudes, the changing biblical understandings of marriage and sex within marriage. In this discussion, it becomes clear that any simplistic definition of, quote, biblical marriage just does not exist. And any clear and explicit prohibition of premarital sex also does not exist even though I, among many, was raised to believe thou shalt not have sex before marriage was actually one of the Ten Commandments. Now, we could talk a long time about this. It would be very interesting if we had more time to talk about what I just said to you, that marriage has changed, our understanding of marriage has changed, and our understanding of what the Bible says about marriage and about what the Bible says about sex in and out of marriage has changed. I'm sorry we don't have talk back time. We could spend some more time on that. You might ought to do some research. Uh, I commend to you James Nelson's book, Embodiment. It's in the library. It's in the library. Thank you, Twyla. The church ought to encourage and build up marriage, but we ought also to be willing to ask if sex outside of marriage and other forms of sexual expression are outside of God's intentions. Is all sex except sex within a traditional marriage, exempt from the blessing of God? What about younger couples who do not choose? I'm sorry. What about younger couples who do not choose the traditional path? What about old couples who forsake marriage vows, sometimes for financial consideration? What about gay couples 
Are these all outside the bounds of God's grace and blessing? Nadia Boltz-Weber offers this non-traditional answer to these questions. Sex can be warm, but it can also be chilling. Sex can bring connection and also alienation. Sex can provide insight, but sometimes confusion. Sex can empower, but sometimes humiliate. And we can teach our kids that every single one of these things is possible in and out of marriage, in straight and in queer relationships, in the young and in the old. Sex shines and flickers, and it rages, lights, burns, and warms. Now, many will be offended by her maverick approach, but it is time the church began to wake up to a new world and to promote living relationships, not just demand marriages that are sometimes held together only by obligation and sanctimony. The abstinence-only approach so long preached by the church has proven ineffective in prolonging virginity and has served in too many cases to bring couples to their marriage bed prone to sexual dysfunction, if not perversion. Much has been written about the abstinence-only movement and what it has done to people who wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. So much talk about waiting, it ought to make us all wonder. I'm sorry we're not having talk back this morning. There are obviously many issues to explore, and I would be glad for us to explore them together. In the absence of that opportunity, let me commend to you some thoughts by our friend, Dr. Don Flowers, formerly from Charleston, now serving a church in Port Williams, Nova Scotia. Don's doctoral project was on creating a sexual ethic for a congregation. He spent a great deal of time in dialogue with his church. All of this was coincidental to his concern for teen sexuality, especially shown in his longstanding engagement with the South Carolina campaign to prevent teen pregnancy. Rather than a narrow and legalistic don't-do-it approach, Don recommends an ethic based on a series of principles with integrity, and Don's principles come from that book, Embodiment by James Nelson. The principles with integrity are commitment, communication, trust, respect, and spirituality. Rather than confining sexual intimacy to the legalistic bounds of a church-sanctioned marriage only, Don suggests the following guidelines. Before engaging in sexual intimacy, couples of any age should ask, How committed am I to this person? Is this a permanent relationship or just a somebody for right now? Do we talk? What do we talk about? Physical communication is not a substitute for verbal communication. Do I trust this person? Will what we do tonight become common knowledge tomorrow? When you share your body with another in the world of AIDS, Don reminds us, you are literally sharing your life. Do you trust this person with your life? Number four, do you feel responsible for this person? Mentally, physically, spiritually, financially, do you feel responsible for this person? And finally, Don says we ought to ask, can I pray about what I am thinking about doing? 
At times, he says, he has encouraged teenagers who were considering becoming sexually active to go sit in their regular seat in the sanctuary and pray about that decision. He says, if they can sit in their holy place and feel comfortable with the decision, I have no place to argue. Regarding sex and sexuality, the church has too often gotten it wrong. But there is hope, as Nadia Boltz Weber says. If religion has been the venue in which the power of sex is taken most seriously, if negatively, could it also become the place in which a new conversation about it arises? One that is not afflicted with legalism and shaming and yet also does not ignore the depravity of human beings in favor of some delusional idea that we are capable of perfect selflessness. On this and other important topics, let's not wait any longer as a church to engage the conversation. The church, better than any institution, ought to be in the business of celebrating the wonder of all of God's creation. May it be so. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.